0: Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. Hey, buddy. I'm excited. You want to know
1: why I'm excited today Bill Bant? It's because I'm not going to give you time to answer. It's because we have a very... Very special guest on a very special episode of All Eighties Movies Podcast. Joining us today, we have the one and only Seth Levitt joining us from the Fish Tank Podcast. Welcome, Seth. Appreciate
2: you guys having me. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Been listening to some episodes, watching some movies, trying to get my uh, my reps in here. I am often called special, but not a special guest. So I appreciate that intro as well, and just uh, looking forward to having some fun. Seth, thank you so much for being here. For those of you. Who do not know, Seth and I have a history together.
0: We used to both work at the Miami Dolphins. Seth over at the media relations department, I was on the other end of the building in marketing and special events. When I was getting into the podcasting, all of a sudden I saw this podcast, The Fish Tank, and I was like, wait
2: a second, I know the host. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) So
0: Seth, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and The Fish Tank Podcast.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you you nailed it there, Bill. Uh, worked for the Miami Dolphins for eight years uh, in the media relations department and then stepped away, got hired by one of the all-time great Dolphins, a guy by the name of, I know we have a big-time Jason here on this podcast, but Jason Taylor, the Hall of Fame defensive <laughs> end, an all-time great Miami Dolphin player. And uh, we started a nonprofit organization, the Jason Taylor Foundation. It was 19 years ago, which is hard to imagine, but always kind of been a behind-the-scenes guy and Got introduced to this podcast world and I caught the bug, fellas. I caught the bug. I think you know all about it. And uh said, you know, well, if all if all those guys can do one, and I don't mean you guys, but just a lot of people that I knew that were doing podcasts, I said, Well, I've got some stories to tell. Let's uh let's have some fun. So I partnered with another all-time dolphin great wide receiver by the name of O.J. McDuffie, and and we launched the fish tank on his pool table in the rec room in his house. And Just uh, wanted to create a world where fans of the Miami Dolphins or football fans in general could maybe peel back the curtain and look what's behind it and what it would sound like if a couple of their favorite Dolphin players and some other Yahoo was uh, sitting around telling stories that they wouldn't tell in public. And we created this podcast and it kind of took off. And here we are in our fifth season. We're now part of the official Miami Dolphins podcast network and having a lot of fun with it. I love it, because when I first
0: started listening to it, it was a lot of people that Seth and I worked with, and just some of the -the behind-the-scenes stories. Like, I knew a version of the story, but maybe there was another version I hadn't heard, or just even some of the stuff from the players, even people who have covered the team in the past when I was there, so... I'm a big fan of the show, and if you're a Miami Dolphins fan, even if you're not a Dolphins fan and just want to know the -the behind-the-scenes workings of a sports team, you should definitely check it out.
2: I appreciate it, Bill. We like to say it's the greatest uh, Miami Dolphins tales you've never heard. It's kind of our tagline there, and, and we do try to tell some fun stories and get some fun laughs. But I want to tell a story here real quickly. So I know you said you worked with the Miami Dolphins. and I know you said you were in marketing and special events. Does your audience, does Jason even know what you actually did for the team? Jason does, but our audience yeah. does not. We've kind of kept it under wraps. Yeah, well, can, can we reveal it? Can we do what I like to do on our show? I always say we like to show what's under the helmet for these players. Uh, you were under a different kind of helmet. So if you've ever watched any sport at all and you're a fan of the mascot, The Miami Dolphins have this like seven-foot-tall dolphin named TD, and Bill, was, were you the first or the second ever TD? You were the mascot. I was technically the second, but I was
0: there for the first season because I initially had hired someone else. That person blew out their knee. They needed someone to (laughs) temporarily fill in, so I was just supposed to be temporary, and then I think that we were playing, I think it was a Monday night game against Chicago, against our future coach. Yeah. And that's when they're like, oh, you're going to have to take over for the rest of the season.
2: You're the guy. You are the Tom Brady of mascots, Bill. I mean, that's what happened, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> this guy, blew, the original TD blows out his uh, his knee and in comes Bill Bant, and you had quite a run.
1: Yeah, 10 seasons. Now he's a first ballot Hall of Famer mascot. Yeah, that's no exactly
2: kidding. right. And some great stories. I'm hoping that we can get Bill Bant to dive into the fish tank and talk about life underneath a different kind of helmet as the mascot there's a lot of
0: people that just don't know and i just don't talk about it and i'm almost kind of forgetting some of the stories of things i did and just even just talking to you just is making me really reminiscent i'm like oh my god i remember when this happened this happened and that happened so i'm looking forward to yeah when i can uh certainly come on the show and share my tales
1: love it i love it yeah absolutely i was going to share one little quick story because i do like to make it about me <laughs> Good for you, Jason. And man, it's just great to have you. You are a true pro. Uh, So I was doing a little research on yourself and I came across one of your, what I guess we call a simulcast. So uh, it was the podcast, but the video was on YouTube and it took me back to my days with Bill Bant at the University of Mm. Miami, Florida. And I remember being on the beach and tossing the pig skin around and a gentleman walked by and he looked at me and he goes he did like this weird double take. And he looks at me and goes, Hey, you know who you look like? And I was like, who? It's like Zach Thomas. (laughs) And I was like, what? Who's that? (laughs) I just wasn't a big dolphins fan. I'm a bears guy myself personally, but, he told me, and then I looked him up and I'm like, okay, I could see that yeah. a little bit. You know, if you looked at me a lot younger with uh, no facial hair at the time and my hair kind of parted the side, but so funny enough, when I was doing research on yourself today, I was watching the podcast with Zach Thomas just after uh, he'd got into the hall and it was great.
2: He's great. He is. He is. There's a reason he's a, a hall of famer.
1: Yeah. But a uh, great, great show. Do you do great work on the fish tank, man? So I just wanted Thank to you share you, sir. That. Absolutely. And not to mention the, the Jason Taylor Foundation, but we, we maybe we'll have you talk about that a little bit later. Hopefully. Cool.
2: Well, I, yeah. Anything you want to talk about? As you said, I love making it about myself as well. So
1: fantastic foundation. So yeah, we got, we got to talk about it a little bit. Absolutely. Would love to do it. Mr. Seth, thanks for sharing all that. But the simple fact is we need to know more. <laughs> so we came up with a list of rapid fire questions to ask you. Are you ready? I am ready. Seth, what was the first movie you ever saw in the theater?
2: I had to go back and check with my mother on this to verify, but she confirmed it was indeed Star Wars, of course. 1977, I was four years old, and she dragged my screaming behind into the film, and my world was changed.
1: Nice. Oh, heck yeah. That, I mean... That's the first. Can you? That's the first movie. Not I ever bad, saw. right? Everything was yeah. downhill yeah. from there, Pretty guys. It
2: was, <laughs> it was all downhill <laughs> from there. My first in theater experience, though, that I can actually remember, because I. And I love Star Wars and I enjoy now my, my son and I have uh, continued that tradition and watched Star Wars, collected, build, you know, Star Wars Legos, all of those fun things. But uh, apparently that was indeed the first film that I ever saw. I don't have great memory of that in-theater experience, but my first in-theater experience that I can remember was, now wait for it, this is a big stretch, Empire Strikes Back, right? In so 1980. So I do remember that. A lot has yeah. been built around that whole, uh, the, that original Star Wars trilogy that was four, five and six.
1: Heck yeah. Great stuff, man. I also, yeah, as Bill, have those nostalgic memories of going to theater to see those films. I definitely remember going to see Empire in the theater and Jedi in the theater with my grandmother, actually. Anywho... Uh, second question, can you give us a quick review of the last movie you saw?
2: Yeah, you know, I just talked about my son and uh, we've uh, gotten him into the Born Identity, the, the Born series. So we did just recently watch the original Born Identity and it never disappoints. You got a young Matt Damon who is one of my favorite actors. He proves in this film there's nothing that he really can't do. He becomes a legitimate action star. And when I say action, if you've seen any of the Born films, we are talking some serious action from start to finish. None of it feels forced. It all feels organic and natural, and and it just never stops. And then who doesn't like a good film with this overarching theme of espionage and government's role as Big Brother and somehow to humanize a $30 million killing machine? Great stuff. What is your go-to snack food when watching a movie? My go-to snack food, I would say I'm a Twizzlers guy when I'm in the theater. If I'm in the theater, I'm not a popcorn guy. I don't like getting all that stuff in my teeth. You know what? I'm going to take a break real quick and tell you a quick story. I'm going full fish tank on you now, but Bill will appreciate this. So when I started in 1996, we had an undrafted rookie free agent by the name of Larry Izzo, who became a cult hero really quickly uh, for the Dolphins. He was a special teams maven, went on to play for the Patriots and win Super Bowls with them and everything. But he was a movie Nut. Big Probably a time. guy you should try to get on the podcast because he used to do movie reviews for the team and everything else. But he had this routine. We'd go see movies together and he would always go buy the biggest tub of popcorn he could buy. the big, I mean, just a giant tub of popcorn. And he would always pretend to trip right before he returned to his seat and spill half the popcorn on whoever was with him. And he did it every time. and We fell for it every time. <laughs> so definitely not popcorn when I go to the movies, but I'm a Twizzlers guy. They aren't messy, which I really like. You can do nachos and cheese. I'm going to end up with cheese stains on my favorite shirt and everything else. So I like that Twizzlers are clean. They're not messy. And I think they're really good for that nervous energy when you're watching a good film and you're all in and you can just kind of chow down on those things.
0: Yeah, Seth, it's funny that you mentioned Larry Izzo, because I don't know how many times I went to that movie co off the 75 and I would run into him there all the time. So it is not a lie that he was a movie nut. There's no doubt.
1: All right, Seth. Well, who is your favorite
0: actor and or actress?
2: Yeah. So this one, I guess a little loaded uh, on the front end, my favorite actor, one of my really close friends is a guy by the name of Omari Hardwick, um, who is best known uh, for his role as James St. Patrick or Ghost in the series Power. And right now is doing a hell of a job uh, alongside Jennifer Lopez and the mother playing the role of Cruz. And so I've known Omari since long before he ever went out to Hollywood and long before I ever found my way to the Miami Dolphins. But just a great dude who has built a heck of a career for himself and I think is one of the finest actors out there. And, and I think the world is starting to see that as well. If I didn't go with someone who I knew and had any bias towards, um, I mentioned it earlier. I'm a big Matt Damon guy. Goodwill Hunting is one of my favorite films of all time. And I think whether it's a heartfelt drama, whether it's an action film like Bourne, um, he was in Ocean's Eleven. He just nails it each and every time. I love Matt Damon. Idris Elba is another guy that I think is is supremely talented. Luther. I mean, the character of Luther is brilliant. And I love Idris and that and everything he's in. And uh, a guy we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today, Gene Hackman. It's a masterclass every time he gets on film. As far as actresses. You know, maybe Jessica Chastain. I think she's like on top of her game right now. I think much like Matt Damon, she's got this crazy range, whether she's playing an assassin or a poker shark or whatever it might be. I think she's really great.
1: Well, solid answers all around. I'm a huge Matt Damon fan myself. And speaking of sports movies or sports related films, have you seen Air yet?
2: I just watched it uh, recently. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, w- it was going to be the film I'd seen most recently, and then Bourne kind of surpassed it. But I did watch Air. He plays Sonny Vaquero. And again, that's another great example. Right. I mean, could that be any different than Jason Bourne? You know, <laughs> <laughs> but, totally. but he nails it.
1: Absolutely. And uh, lastly, what is your favorite movie of all time?
2: Yeah, I guess I did kind of give a little hint here. Hard for me to pick just one. My top three are probably all on an equal plane, and I think they're each unique in their own right. Goodwill Hunting, as I said, I mean, that movie... Moved me. I kind of just wandered into that by accident. I think what I was going to see was sold out or whatever it might be, and I saw Good Will Hunting. It was just blown away and took me on a journey that I, I never anticipated. And I, I can't get enough of that film. The Usual Suspects is right up there. Love The Usual Suspects. Kaiser Sose all day. I think that's a great one. And then a little film that uh, we might talk about some today called Hoosiers. Perhaps you guys have heard of it? Yes, we have. <laughs> Seth, thanks so much for your answers and
0: yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie that you chose today, which is Hoosiers?
2: Yeah, surprise surprise, right? Pulled one from my top 3. So, Hoosiers is a 1986 American sports drama. It was originally released in Indiana in November of 1986. It was written and directed by two first-timers, guys who met as frat brothers at the University of Indiana, Angela Pizzo and David Anzball was the director. And a fun fact, as I said, these guys, not only were they frat brothers and not only did they like making sports movies in Indiana, but after Hoosiers, they went on to make Rudy. I'm not one for Greek life, but it's safe to say it paid off for these two guys who uh, put out a couple of great films. So Hoosier stars the aforementioned Gene Hackman as coach Norman Dale, the ageless Barbara Hershey, and the spectacularly gifted, if not enigmatic Dennis Hopper as shooter Flatch, the town drunk. Hopper uh, earned an Academy Award nomination for his performance as a guy who just couldn't seem to get it right, couldn't stay off the booze, but had a passion for hoops. And then the film also earned an Oscar nomination for the original score by Jerry Goldsmith. And if you've ever watched Hoosiers, that music starts to play and the hair stands up on the back of your neck. I mean, uh, it did a brilliant job there. This is a film, guys, that is regarded as one of the greatest sports movies ever made. So it's not just my bias but there were readers of USA Today. They did a poll of what were the greatest sports movies ever made and they picked Hoosiers. So I'm not alone there. Uh, Maybe that means I'm not original. I don't know. But it was also ranked number 13 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Cheers list of most inspirational films. I tend to agree with that as well. And later the AFI revealed its top 10, 10 list of the top 10 films in 10 classic American film genres. And Hoosiers was the fourth best movie in the sports category. So Hoosiers, is uh is an all-time classic i think it's safe to say seth what a great choice so let's move on to what's on the box so
0: if you grew up in the 1980s and what's your local video store to rent this movie you would find this description on the back of the vhs box it is what's on the box take it away jason thrill to the days
1: of the hometown hero in this rousing uplifting stand up and cheer film that's straight from the heartland gene hackman Barbara Hershey, and Dennis Hopper in his Academy Award-nominated performance bring all the thrills of a winning shot at the buzzer to the screen in Hoosiers. It's 1951 in Hickory, Indiana, a place that takes its basketball as seriously as its religion. Into this tiny town strolls Norman Dale Hackman, a once-hailed, now-failed college coach taking up the unenviable task of coaching Hickory High's eight-man hoop squad. Dale has been down on his luck for the last 10 years and hopes this could be a fresh start. But several people have something to say about his suspicious training methods and unorthodox bench manner. The school's vice principal, Hershey, who is keeping his best player in the classroom, the town drunk, Hopper, who is ruffling Midwestern feathers as the new assistant coach, and Dale's team, who are short on both height and discipline. The school and the town want him fired, but Coach Dale believes in two things, himself and his team amazingly kids become captains players become a team losers become winners Hasbands become once again together they make history
0: in hoosiers so that was what's on the box so we move on to our next segment which is initial thoughts and seth we kind of know why you picked this movie because it is one of your favorite sports movies yeah Yeah, let us know maybe, you know, first time you saw it, what do you think of this movie, why this is one of your favorite movies of all time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess beyond all the the Wikipedia research I just spewed there, the film, it just moves me. I mean, that's what it comes down to, fellas. I, I am always inspired by the story of the underdog that overcomes the impossible odds to achieve greatness. And that's exactly what you see here. That isn't limited to sports, but in this case, it is a sports story. Although I think this film does a great job of using sport as this microcosm of society and and showing how it can impact not only what happens on the floor, but what happens in this town. Uh, the Norman Dale character fascinates me. You know, here's this man with the mysterious past because we don't know why he's there. Why is he in this small town when he did coach at the college level? I think that's curious and interesting. And he's looking for his own personal redemption in some kind of ways. But even though this is kind of his last shot. He's unwilling to compromise in his values. And I love that. I think that's a model of leadership that I like. I can relate to in some ways. And, you know, he starts as a villain of sorts and then ultimately becomes the hero. And that speaks to me as well. So there's a lot of things, I think, that pull at the heartstrings here with this film. And then, you know, as you said earlier, Bill, we can't hide this. I happen to like sports. So if you get me a good sports movie and it taps into the sociology of sport, I'm probably going to be interested. You also have the nuance of that small town life where everyone knows everyone. Everyone's in everybody's business. There's this politics of sport, particularly in a community like this. And then the adulation that comes with being a winner. Things that are looked beyond. I don't like you until you start winning games or you're wearing my colors and all of a sudden you're my best friend. And all of those things happen here in this film. It somehow finds a way. And it's all again, it feels organic. It's neat. It's not like it's all over the place. All of these things just kind of fall into place it, like dominoes. These guys nailed it. It's incredible. They were first time filmmakers when they rolled this thing out.
0: That is certainly amazing. Jason, I'm going to send it to you. What are your initial thoughts about Hooters? Well, Bill Bant, you know, I've got some initial
1: thoughts. So sit down. Make oh, yeah. We know comfortable. <laughs> Seth, get ready. Uh, Seth, you nailed it. I'm going to touch on a couple things you touched on. Just well said, man. Way to introduce this movie with your thoughts. Gentlemen, I'm going to ask you a simple question to start us off. Do you feel better after watching this movie? Hell
2: yeah, without a doubt.
1: Do you just feel better about life in general? Certainly do. Isn't this what life is all about? Isn't this the sole purpose of an 80s movie? Ugh, I freaking love this movie. And well, the music just gets you started, doesn't it? Jerry Goldsmith's Bittersweet, beautiful score. Just gives you goosebumps from the get. Just knowing what you're about to get into if you've seen this movie before. Oh my goodness, I was ready to go. Okay, Gene Hackman. This is the man, period. End of sentence. This is Gene Hackman's movie. End of sentence. Is Hoosiers about the basketball? Of course. Is it an underdog story? As Seth said, yes, of course. Yeah, we get to know some of the players. We get to see some great highlight action from several games, but you don't hear actually that much from the players themselves. Jimmy Chitwood is the star player and speaks a total of, count them, Four lines in the movie. And nails this movie, <laughs> yeah, he does just like his shots. That's right. This movie is about Coach Norman Dale, played by Gene Hackman. Hackman is someone I definitely would be starstruck by, and as an actor, someone I would be intimidated by on a set. No question. If there's one thing in this life I know for sure, I don't ever want Gene Hackman yelling at me. I don't. I would literally piss my pants. He absolutely commands. You can't keep your eyes off him. He's a leader. He's the wisest man in the room. He may not be tender or have the gentle touch, or you may not want him in romantic scenes or a love story, but you want him as your coach, your mentor. He embodies strength and hard work and discipline. That's why he's perfect in this as well as every other film he's in. I actually uh, considered going over his 80s filmography here for a minute, but that would take much longer than I'm already going to take. And... It's a decent filmography, but I found it interesting that most of my favorite work of his is actually kind of outside the 80s, either in the late 70s or in the 90s. It's interesting. Go check it out for yourself, folks. Listeners, chime in if you have a different opinion. Man, the opening shots tap into that part of me that really misses the Midwestern countryside. Uh, Seth, a little bit about me. I'm from a small town outside of Chicago, Illinois, out in the country, little town called Lindenhurst. So I see the wide open fields, the isolated barns on the acres and acres of land. As far as the eye can see, the dirt crossroads, the wood telephone poles, the leaves falling off the trees, the golden glow of the light at sunset. It's all country, romantic. This is a small town where dreams are born and have their beginnings. I mean, I love me that atmosphere. Always have. It's here in spades. Whether it be the coach's short-lived like vetting process by the locals in the barbershop or the God-fearing town where a preacher paints his bus, the team colors only during the team season, or the fact the coach is living in the back house of a farm that belongs to the principal of the high school, or it's the kids <laughs> shooting hoops in the dirt using a backboard attached to a barn. And of course, you have to have the town hall meeting, and not to mention towns with names like Hickory, Oolitic, Cedar Knob, and Deerlick, Doesn't get any better for me. Moving on. You said it, Seth. David Anspaugh, directorial debut. And I have to mention this for Bill Bant's sake. Before Hoosiers in 1986, guess what he directed in 1985? That's right. He directed two episodes of Miami Vice. Hell yeah. Golden Triangle Part 2 and Rites of Passage. Seth, Bill, and I, we always have to get a shout out to anybody involved with Miami Vice on this show makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank it, you. you. You're like, yeah. So why? you don't have to explain that to me. I forgot that the introduction of this film, the opening, you know, there's some scenes I actually had forgotten about in this movie, the opening conversation between coach Dale and vice principal, Barbara Hershey, AKA Myrna. So it was funny. I had some blind spots in this movie. some things that I had forgotten. Uh, watching coach Dale's first conditioning practice, traumatic memories for me of doing ladders in the bas- basketball gym. I absolutely hated those. Oh man, Seth, you said it. What sports means to a small town is never to be underestimated. We know it. It's real. The sports can, in some cases, be their actual identity. The first hour of this film, I thought, this here's an initial thought. First hour of this film for me is really about character building. There's basketball, but it's kind of featured in the background. It's not the main focus. The focus is establishing relationships, obstacles, stakes, mainly in relation to Coach Dale. There's so many obstacles that we invest in within the first hour that the stakes really rise up. It's Dale versus the town, Dale versus Mira, it's Dale versus his own team versus his past. It's the question of whether or not Jimmy's going to play. You know, we get to know the players a little bit, but the first half of the movie, we just, we get some highlights from the first few games that they're struggling in, but the focus is on how Dale is coaching in the game and how he's handling the pressure. This is like you said, Dale's attempt at redemption. And now we're about to get into the game and how the stakes, uh, the stakes are high because we care about everyone that's involved. It's just straightforward, smart uh, storytelling for a sports movie. Here's an initial thought for me. It's a palpable feeling at almost exactly the one hour mark after the town hall meeting, when you know we've just moved into the second act and second half. It's then just bang. As soon as the town hall meeting ends, Jimmy Chitwood is now playing and the music score kicks in and we're off. Everything in the story is set up. Perfectly. Let's stop messing around. Let's go. The stakes are high because we care about everyone involved. Right. And it just then turns into the best sports movie of all time. So, finally, this is what I'm going to say. And, man, again, I just keep saying this over and over, Seth, because you just had so many great points, but it is about the feeling. So much of this about, is about the mythos surrounding high school sports. I've been a part of it. Many of us have been a part of it in some way, shape, or form, for better or worse. But for me, it was one of the greatest times of my life. And those high school games do feel like the weight of the world is on you and the pressure is overwhelming and the town and the school and your family are counting on you. And if you lose, it's the end of the world. So with such a blend of competition and emotion and youth and pressure, it creates a world unto itself. If you emerge victorious, you're then on top of the world and you feel absolutely invincible. And again, if you lose, you just want to die. So make no mistake, high school sports are a world unto themselves. And many of us can call back to that smell of the gym, the squeaking of the shoes on the floor, the uniforms, the painted brick walls. Or for me, it was the smell of the grass or the touch of the field. But most of all, it's the memory of your teammates and coaches and mentors and the camaraderie and friendship built from playing a simple game. And that's why we go back to our small hometowns and we sit around with our old teammates and talk about the glory days because that's what they were. They were glorious. They were exhilarating. They were euphoric. And that's what this movie for me exemplifies and encapsulates. It's all those sounds, images, and feelings. That's what a good sports movie does. We love to relive the feeling through the movie. That's what I do through Hoosiers. I get high off the ending of this movie every time. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it. And it struck the Philistine on the head and he fell to the ground. Amen, Hoosiers. Those are my initial thoughts. Bill Bant, what say you?
2: Wow. Good luck finding that, Bill Bant. <laughs> I like between you two guys. <laughs> I tried to prepare you. I tried- Holy moly. <laughs> I- I'm ready to go play. I'm ready to suit yeah. up. Let's do it.
0: Let's go. Yeah. I think between the two of you, you've already covered everything about this movie and growing up, <laughs> basketball was my sport. But up to that point, probably the best basketball movie I had ever seen was The Fish That Saves Pittsburgh. that came out in 1979 with Dr. J. Great film. So when Hooters came out, I was a freshman in high school. And I went with three of my friends from elementary school. We we're going to the movies. Well, we were going to the movies to see Lethal Weapon, or that's what I thought we were seeing because I really wanted to see Lethal Weapon, and we went to the AMC Orleans 8, and on the marquee was Hoosiers, and all of a sudden, my friend's like, no, we're going to go see Hoosiers. I'm like, no, I want to see Lethal Weapon, and I got outvoted three to one, and I'm glad that that happened because this is, to me, the best basketball movie of all time. There's not even a close second. Luckily, I did get to see Lethal Weapon the following weekend, but um, I'm glad they took me to see that because I probably would not have ever seen it on the big screen. I probably would have waited till it came out on video. I mean, everything that you guys said, I'm in total agreement with it. This movie is great. Gene Hackman is great. Watching it again to do the research for this podcast. Dennis Hopper, I never realized how amazing he I mean, I know he got nominated for the Oscar, but... Every time he's on screen, yeah, he knocks it out of the park. This is a great movie. Looking forward to getting into it. So let's just move on to our favorite scenes. And Seth wants to start us off. What is your favorite scene from Hoosiers?
2: My favorite scene from this film is one of my favorite scenes from any movie I've ever watched. But it's the opening game of the season. And Jason nailed it, right? It's all this setup. And you're so right. We had to care about all of the stakeholders for us to care about the ball, right? We needed to do that. And the opening game of the season, Coach Dale, steadfast in his efforts to instill discipline, his style of play, he tells the players, I know you guys remember how many passes? Four, four passes, right? Four passes before anybody takes a shot. And it's not going well, guys. These guys are forcing passes, they're turning the ball over, they're passing up shots. And if it was going poorly on the court, it's an absolute debacle in the stands. The townspeople are beside themselves. They can't understand what's going on. They're frustrated. They're screaming for the players to shoot, right? Every one of them has become a coach. They're all trying to just take over the team immediately. They cannot handle what's going on out there. And then finally, Ray Butcher, he's played by Steve Haller, and he obliges. He pleases the fans, and he just starts pulling up at will. Ray is like... Screw your four passes. I'm going to start pulling the trigger and he's on fire. He's making shots. He's feeling good about himself. He's leading with his chest out and Norman Dale is on the bench and his blood is boiling. Eventually, guys, he has seen enough. And what does he do? He pulls Raid out of the game and the tension is thick on that bench. Every time you're on that bench, Raid is like, how am I not out there? He knows he defied authority in that moment, but he was trying to show you what he was made of. And. It's unbelievable what's going on between those two guys. You want to talk about some great acting and writing. It's unbelievable what's going on between those two guys on the bench when really nothing is going on. But I'm just dreading what's going to happen between them. But Ray knows, like, I'm that dude. I did what I needed to do. And so he's taking his medicine. But then a player fouls out. Remember. The Huskers only have six players on the team right now because Norman Dale in the first practice kicked two guys off the team. They're a small school to begin with. So they go out there with six te- six guys on the team. One of them doesn't even want to play. Ollie's the team manager. He doesn't even want to play. Five guys are out there. Raid's on the bench. And then the player fouls out. So Ray, what does Ray do? There's only four on the floor. He just makes the assumption that he's next man in. He steps up. He starts to take off those beautiful gold satin color, you know, the warm ups, and he's <laughs> ready yeah. to trip back in. And Coach Dale doesn't even stand up. He just looks at him and says, Where are you going? And Raid's like, I'm, I'm going out, you know, we need another player. And he instructs Raid to sit down. And, you know, you said you never want Gene Hackman yelling at you. He tells him, sit your ass right back down on that bench. And now it's like, oh, no, it's on. The fans are leaning over the wall. Norman Dale's just sitting there like a gangster. And everyone's going crazy. The players are looking at each other like, what's going on? Here comes the ref. Hey, coach, you need another player. And then Norman Dale, this rock of a man molded in principle and discipline, he utters my favorite line of the entire film. He says, my team is on the floor. The ref hears that. He is not even questioning Norman Dale. He's like, okay. He turns around. He's like, I guess they're playing with floor. He is not messing with them. He shrugs. He goes back. He gets ready to start the game up. The players start looking at each other like, what just happened? We are in for it for not just this game, but the rest of the season. If this guy's willing to play with four people. And then I love that. You ever watch American Idol and then Simon Cowell just steal the heart of some 11-year-old and tell them how terrible they are? And, and 5,000 people in the studio audience start booing. And Simon Cowell just kind of waves him off. Like, he doesn't even care. He's like, this is what I'm here to do. Norman Dale, they're, they're jeering. They're going crazy. And he just waves his little book at him, doesn't even care. He knows what he's doing and he just keeps it moving. It's just an epic scene. And I love that he has set the tone for these players for the rest of the season. They know in that moment that this guy is not here to play games. And I also have to believe that, like, that night, That's when all the townspeople went home and started to petition for the removal of Normandale. You know, we see it later at the town hall meeting that you talk about and you find out, wow, they've been working on it. I have no doubt, fellas, that it was that night. They were like, we got to get rid of this guy. This is not going to happen. So I just love it. And it also reinforced for me every difficult, unpopular, but principled stance that I've taken in my life. In that very moment, I was like, yeah, that's why I did it because my team is on the floor.
0: Great stuff, stuff. Dang. Really? Well done. I appreciate Definitely it. Definitely two moments in that scene. The one, like, he is squeezing that notebook so tight. You're expecting to see water come out of it because he is so mad that they are not following what he does. And then he gets scared because when the game's over, which is cool because we don't know what the score is, but we certainly know they lost. But we don't need to see what it is because that's not important. The important is he's trying to build a team here. And he goes in the locker room and he starts yelling at the players and he tells them, think about if you want to be on this team or not. And like you said, he only has six players. You can go to practice right. on Monday and only three show up. But for some reason, yeah. they all come back. So there is something going on. There is a connection. They do understand what he's trying to do. But in that moment, it's your first game and the crowd's all against you. They're not seeing the big picture. They're just seeing the here and now. And that just, just makes it amazing. It's like, because up to that point, Norman Dale has almost isolated everybody in that town. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not all of a sudden he mm. pulls a magic trick and is like, look, we're winning. No, we're losing.
2: Yeah, with four players.
0: How's he going to turn things
2: around? You're right. You know, I didn't even mention one of my other, one of the other great moments in that scene. So his old buddy, right? His old buddy is Principal Cletus Summers, which, how oh, great yeah. is that name, by the way? Cletus Summers. Awesome. The only name better than Cletus Summers is the actual actor, right? Sheb Wooley is. He his, should you just know, get the so name. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's so great. So Cletus yeah. leans over to him and he's like, you know, and he took a gamble. He brought in this coach with this mysterious background. He knows what happened, but he's given him this chance at redemption. And he took a gamble. And all of a sudden he sees him playing with four players. He thinks that they're not going to make it out of there alive. And he leans over and he says, what are you trying to do? And I just, I just like even his buddy is questioning himself in that moment. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Oh,
1: man. Just awesome. I think you guys have covered that scene pretty well. For me, you know, I kept thinking about well, one, I want to comment on the names again because you're right. Cletus is, you got to, I mean, to have a Cletus in a small town, perfect. But I've never known anyone named Raid, R A D E. What a great name. Great name. For the longest time, I thought his name was Ray, just Ray, R A Y, but it's Raid. I yeah. just picked up on that this time around. Speaking of Hackman as coach Norman Dale, the internal fortitude you have to have, because that, you nailed it, that line when he looks at the ref and said, that's my team. That's my team on the floor. The scene previous, there's a pep rally at the school and that's a very impactful scene. I was tempted to put it in my favorite scenes, but I was tempted to put every scene in this film in my favorite (laughs) scenes. So in the pep rally, when the crowd just comes to a dead silence, when he tells them or he's going on about how they need to respect the team and he looks at them kind of with a dead eye stare and says, this is your team. Because they're chanting, Jimmy, we want Jimmy, we want Jimmy, or something of that sort. And he said, no, this is your team. And he's so steadfast in his belief of how it's supposed to be run and how it's supposed to be done. And he's going to stick to his guns no matter. He's unwavering. And it's so impressive because I kind of think of it too, like in the entertainment world, as you may know, nothing is worse than a director that doesn't know what he wants. And here we have a team and we have a coach that really knows what he wants, but he also understands that he's got to break these guys down and then build them up. We under, he says as much, they're almost have to lose before they're going to win. They're going to have to take a step backwards before taking two steps forward and to stick it out and know that he, like Bill just said, he's made an enemy of everybody in the town and that he's got to stick with it. It's tough, but you've got to respect him. And if he were to ever waver, everything he stood for would just crumble in an instant. Agreed. And the te- they would just go back to the way things were before and most likely not accomplish what they do. And then, like Bill was alluding to as well, or speaking on, was the moment after the scene in, in the locker room. He applauds the the remaining four players that were on the floor and says, I was, I'm proud of you. There is some positive reinforcement. He's not just beating them over the head. And I appreciate that about him as well. But then he asks the question, you know, you got to look within yourselves and make a decision. The book ends in the scene itself, because I'm probably going to talk about Hackman a lot in this podcast, but there is plenty of basketball in this movie. I didn't mean to say that basketball was really the background story. But after Seth, you broke down that scene for me. This is just a, yeah, it's just a a great scene about kids that are going to have to learn to, to take orders.
2: You know, for sure. I You know, you also brought up that pep rally, which was one I was thinking about as well, Jason. And that was a great call because right after this is your team, he says this other line, something to the effect of celebrate us for who we are rather than focusing oh, right. on who we're not. Because yep. they we want Jimmy, we want Jimmy. And like, think about that. You know, what is he teaching these young people in that moment beyond just rooting for a sports team? Celebrate who we are rather than focusing on who we're not. I mean, he was fabulous. The writing, the writing in there yeah. to build that character. I mean, obviously Gene Hackman was masterful, but these guys built this character and you, you want to talk about leadership. He was yeah. a leader. All right, Jason, um, on to you. What is your
0: first favorite scene or moment of Hoosiers?
1: Well, I'm calling this stuck in a small town because this is actually, I believe, before the first game. So I'm going to take it back just a little bit. I'm talking about the conversations, their back-to-back conversations, one between Coach Dale and Jimmy and one between Coach Dale and Myra. That's Myra Fleener. We do know that Coach Norman Dale is the new guy in town. Everyone's looking at him sideways. The so-called heads of the town attempted like a vetting process, an interview at the local barbershop, which is great. Like that's where they all convene. That's where they all decide to hang out and do this pretty aggressive interview, actually. Now... We know Coach Dale has had a heated discussion with George, the assistant coach at the beginning of Dale's first practice with the team, resulting in George's dismissal. (laughs) And then we know Vice Principal Myra Fleener. We understand that she is the now guardian of Jimmy Chitwood, uh, which is important. Uh, We learned that Jimmy's father had passed and uh, his mother is sick. And since the coach, the previous coach to Coach Dale had died, he's... uh, kind of become an introvert and decided to quit playing ball. And so now Myra, the vice principal, is looking after Jimmy. And he is more, you know, everybody makes it quite clear, especially to Coach Dale, that he is Hickory's star player, that being Jimmy. And we know Myra is especially skeptical of Coach Dale and doesn't want Jimmy playing for him. Okay, so that's kind of the setup here. So great. Great. Cut to this scene when coach finds Jimmy outside the school shooting hoops on this dirt square patch. And it's a two-hander scene, you know, it's just a two actor scene and coach walks up in his great leather jacket and his, all of his presence. And Jimmy's just doing what Jimmy does. Doesn't miss. It's just, you know, swish after swish. And you just hear that ball going through the hoop and Jimmy just keeps stepping back and taking the shots from a distance. And coach says, hey, you know, I didn't see you in class today. And this is always interesting, too, back in the time, you know, when I remember in high school when the sports coaches were also teachers. So they were doing both. And he didn't see Jimmy in class that day. And he goes into this monologue, and I'll speed through it, but he says, "Uh, you know, in the 10 years that I coached, I never met anybody who wanted to win as badly as I did. I'd do anything I had to do to increase my advantage. Anybody who tried to block the pursuit of that advantage, I'd just push them out of the way. It didn't matter who they were et cetera, et cetera. And then he just says, but that was then. And then he looks at Jimmy. Meanwhile, Jimmy, not listening, really. He's just making shots, making shots. Coach Dale says, you have a special talent, a gift. Not the schools, not the townspeople, not the teams, not my refleaners, not mine, it's yours. Do with what you choose because that's what I believe. I can tell you this, I don't care if you play on the team or not. It's just a great little monologue, and so Jimmy good. makes every single shot throughout the entire monologue until Dale says the final line. I don't care if you play on this team or not. Jimmy wasn't expecting that brick. He misses the shot and then takes a moment to think about what Dale just said. Dale walks off. Jimmy just goes back to making his shots. It's just great. Cause you think maybe at first Dale approaches him, maybe to recruit him. We don't know. We just know that he's steadfast in his beliefs. It's kind of been proven to this point that he's not going to, budge. He doesn't care what Jimmy's going to do. He's going to work with the players he's got, but still you're not quite sure, but he makes it quite clear that there was once upon a time that nothing would stand in his way of winning. And he probably would have recruited Jimmy, but that was then this is now son. You got a choice. It's yours, not mine. I could give a damn whether you play or not. It's brilliant. You know, and it's just it bang. It's just, and it's short, but because of the way it's choreographed, the way it's written, And we'll get into the research later to find out Hackman wasn't (laughs) wild about the writing of this film, which is crazy when you you listen to that monologue and you you watch the scene. But then it moves right into Coach Dale going into the school and who's there ready to confront him, but none other than Myra uh, Fleener. And she just says to him, pretty much point blank, I want you to leave Jimmy alone. He's a special kid. She has high hopes for him that he may get a scholarship to a better school and that he's going to get out of this small town to get out of Hickory. And says, you know, a basketball hero around here is treated like a god. How can we ever find out what he can really do? And I love this line from Coach Dale, who says, in response, you know, most people would kill to be treated like a god just for a few moments. And, like, it's a great back and forth, but she has these great points and these great daggers. And she says, yeah, gods come pretty cheap these days, mm-hmm. speaking of how players will do this for the money. It's all just to play this simple game, but it's about getting paid, because then and they can become gods by playing this game. Myra says, I know men like you. And he says, you don't know anything about me. And she says, I know you're here. Love that line. I know you're here. Either you're running away from something or have nowhere else to go. And what can Dale say? But he's like, you don't know anything about me. The reason why I'm here has nothing to do with you. Uh, She just says, just stay away from Jimmy. I don't want him coaching in Hickory when he's 50.
2: Mm. Brutal. Zinger.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I just basically wrote down the quotes and spouted them for you, but they're great quotes. It's great writing. I had to say it just so you got a real understanding because if I paraphrased it, it just wouldn't be as good. But the point being is I know what it's like to be in a small town and want to get out, but there are the adults. There are the adults that want better for you, and she sees what Jimmy could become, and she sees the people around her that do sit around and talk about the glory days, these sad, sad men. Oh, yeah, he calls them. I've seen them the sad ones uh that sit around and he she just doesn't want him to get stuck and is kind of a little bit going after Dale, and he's trying to defend himself a little bit and saying, "You don't know who I am or why I'm here, but uh, it's great writing. you see both sides here, and you understand a little bit of again what sports mean to the small town and what can happen to uh the kids that don't concentrate on school, but only the sports and then get stuck in their small town so. That's, I find those, that, great those back-to-back conversations uh, impactful.
2: Such a great choice. And I got to tell you, Jason, it, it, you, know, you brought up an interesting point, is that when Norman Dale walks out there to talk to Jimmy, the assumption is that he is going to try to convince him to play ball. He's only got six guys. One of them won't even listen to him. And here's this brilliant talent. And right. it's exactly the opposite of what he does. But to your point, Myra Fleener is looking out that window and she just knows in her heart of hearts that that's exactly what he's doing because that's all anybody else does. They basically try to take advantage of Jimmy's talents for their own gain. And so she's just made this complete assumption. And then she does confront Norman Dale. He does stand up for himself a little bit, but he never says, I didn't ask Jimmy to play. He doesn't reveal that. He allows her to believe what she wants to believe. But he told that kid what he felt he needed to tell him in that moment. It is really so powerful. And it just, um, Bill and I worked around some head coaches in our days with the Dolphins. And I always say that you don't have any idea what it's like to work for a living until you work for a head coach, because the expectations are just so different. They're just built different. To lead men at that level, uh, it's just a different thing. And I thought Hackman's portrayal of this coach, it was so authentic. For the coaches that were true leaders, you know, we've had some guys that have gotten queasy uh, in their time as head coaches. But, you know, for the guys that were really leaders, I mean, he just checked every box there. And that scene exemplified it. Great call.
0: Yeah, great call, Jason, because I initially had that down as my first favorite scene.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was so good to go first. Let me just <laughs> there's say there's thank up. you for letting your guests go first.
1: Please add on to it, Bill. Yeah, what, I think uh, the two that?
0: things I really like about that scene is A, you know, part of me is like, oh, is he trying to pull some reverse psychology by telling him he doesn't want him on the team? Maybe that he will get him on the team. But when he says that first line before I would have done anything to be a winner back then, he would have done anything to get Jimmy on that team. And we know there's a past that we don't know. There's a story still we don't know about coach. And when that is revealed, that even makes that scene, it props it up a little bit because you know. If what happened to Coach Dale in the past hadn't happened, he would have been heavily recruiting Jimmy at that moment. He would have got him to somehow play on that team. So I think Coach Dale has learned something in himself also by telling Jimmy this because he realizes, you know what, if the kid doesn't want to play, why should I force him to play? It should be up to him. And I know the whole townspeople want to play, but it's really his call. And he's letting them know, if you want to play great, if not, we'll be fine without you. When you watch rewatch the movie again you see that scene there's there's just so many more of the pieces that kind of fit in you're like
2: oh yeah okay this makes a lot more sense that's a great point that's a, all the callbacks to it is a great point. The other thing that I absolutely love is, and you're right, he hits shot after shot after shot without missing. And there aren't a whole lot no. of cutaways. I mean, it's not like there's somebody on a crane dropping balls. And he just, you know, Maris Malinas was just draining them. And, you know, I think we'll get to this at some point in the podcast. But apparently, you know, he, he, the actor said he just ignored anything Gene Hackman was saying to him and right. focused on making shots, which was kind of what was happening in that moment. And he just kept draining them <laughs> until he does get that zinger at the end in bricks.
1: Yeah, it, it's great. What I'm thinking about while you guys are making so many great points about this is the just the topic of uh, life experience and what is important. And it is a matter of perspective. And that's what we're getting here a little bit, especially for Myra. You know, you brought this... I think you both brought this up because you're talking about like head coaches in the NFL, but there are coaches that have life experience. And he, this character of Norman Dale, obviously was a college coach, but then took 10 years off, was in the Navy. He had been away from the game for a total of, I think, 12 years, but obviously has a lot of life experience that he brings to the table. And I don't know how much Myra is aware of that, but Myra has seen a lot too. She's left the small town and come back. And the thing is sometimes... The kids just don't understand that there's more to the world than just the game. And they don't, you know, you don't want a child or a youth to have the blinders on and think that the only thing that's worth spending your time on is playing a game and winning and getting the adulation, as you mentioned earlier, Seth, it's a great word because we crave it. We want it. And you're a big fish in a little pond. I mean, I love living up in a small town when you knew everybody and you felt seen, but there's more to the world and she just sees the potential in him. And the game doesn't have to be his focus and what's important, but everybody wants different things, right? But ultimately the choice is Jimmy. So we'll move on. We could talk about that stuff
0: for a long time. <laughs> for me, since I got a pivot from my first favorite scene. Um, so I'm going to go to the introduction of shooter played by Dennis Hopper, the Oscar nominee. And when we first meet him, I just love this scene. So we have coach Dale, And Cletus, and they're at the diner, and they're just kind of eating some pie or whatever. And then here comes old shooter stumbling in, and you can tell uh, he's a little bit inebriated. And he goes over to Cletus, and Cletus goes to introduce him to Coach Dale. And he's like, oh, yeah, Cletus, did you tell him about the time and the such-and-such finals? And it was the last shot, and he's like, five, four, three, two, off the hand. Missed it. And then he, he throws in really quick. I was fouled. And <laughs> great, you can great tell deliver, he's yeah. been, uh, unfortunately, reliving that moment for uh, most of his life. Then he kind of leans over to Cletus and, you know, asks him for some change. Cletus is more than happy to oblige because he, he knows, you know, what unfortunately Shooter's been going through. And Shooter, thanks for the money, he's excited to meet the coach. And then when he's about to leave, all of a sudden we see Everett, one of the players from the team, come up and basically stop shooter and he's like hey give that back and you're kind of like oh yeah what's this conversation about and shooter gives back the money and then everett's like all right let's get out of here dad and you're like oh okay so uh shooter's everett's dad and you're not sure where this is going to go with the character but um it's a cool introduction and we find out that shooter it maybe has forgotten as much basketball as coach Dell knows and Coach Dale ends up leaning on him and trying to help him at the same time to help this team. So, anytime Hopper was on screen, it was just magical. And this was really his first introduction to it. So, I, I almost felt like all the other times I was thinking of the scenes, I, I didn't have Hopper in it. And I was like, I got to put something in there. So,
2: it's your new favorite scene. <laughs> It's a great great. choice. It's a great choice. I love when you brought up, you know, whenever it walks in, because we do, we start to see the shame that this young man's living with, that his father, you know, he's playing basketball and in some ways, right, following in his father's footsteps Mm -hmm. on the court, but does not want to follow in his footsteps off the court. And he's living with this shame that he's known as the son of the town drunk. And, you know, as we've seen for far too many of our young people that have to step into the role of being the adult in a a relationship with their own parent forces them to give that change up. That was pretty heavy in a short moment in time. It was pretty heavy. And again, I think it's a testament to the writing, but also, as you said, that, you know, for Hopper and Hopper was embarrassed. He just wanted he was just hoping he was he was like, I was this far. I was almost out of here with my, you know, my 50 cents. And and now my own son is uh, is correcting me, is parenting me. So, yeah, great call, Bill, even if you were forced (laughs) into it. And I
1: apologize for forcing you into this situation, (laughs) but not really. I take back the apology immediately because it is a great scene and I'm glad you brought it up. Character establishment, great writing. Seth said it. You've said it. This is how you do it. And if you're going to do it, hopefully we're going to see some sort of arc with these characters and see how the obstacles that are presented here are overcome because it just presents more drama, more tension. And it's great for storytelling. So now we have the town drunk and we have his son who's on the team and we have, you know, well, it's like, well, this is going to be a problem somewhere down the line. I'm sure they wouldn't introduce these characters otherwise, we hope. Dennis Hopper, what can you say? I mean, he's a wonderful actor and you see it and it's like, man, Bill, you nailed it when he talks about, he's reminiscing about that shot. His delivery is impeccable. I, it's just so sweet the way he delivers it and just kind of under his breath says, I was fouled. Yeah, it's just like, you know, he just kills it. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's all I'll say. It's um, again, this the beginning of this movie just sets everything up. And then the second half just knocks it all down in the best possible way. So,
0: all right, Seth, we go back to you. What's another favorite scene of yours from Hoosiers of the many?
2: Oh, man, there were so many. There's two that I'm wrestling with, and I'll, I'll pick one and hopefully leave something for you guys as well here. But, you know, you brought up the town hall meeting, uh, Jason. And so the townspeople are there, and they're hooting and hollering. And he's won over Barbara Hershey at this point. And so now she's she sees what's happening here. And talk about a 180. She's devastated that she realizes, wait a minute, he not only has the best interest for Jimmy, he has the best interest for really everybody he's in who he's touched as he's walked into this town. Uh, You know, you talk about going from from zero to hero in her eyes and she sees the way things are moving and they get up there and they essentially say he's done. He's out of here. Norman Dale is like, yeah, I've kind of seen this movie before. He's you know, he's bothered by it because he's doing good work. But I I think he's lived this experience and he's been run out of a town before. And we we understand that now. But then what happens? The guy who has not spoken the entire film, but is, is is this overarching character. Jimmy Chitwood comes dribbling the ball into the meeting. All the players are staring at him and he takes the ball. And who's he handed to? He just kind of pushes it into Ollie's chest. Like, so, you know, you want to talk about leadership. Here's Jimmy. That is this, this mysterious character. Everybody's talking about him and he finds the lowest guy in the totem pole and he lifts him up by handing him the ball, walks up there. I got something to say. And, you know, I think it's about time I start playing ball again. And I love George. I told you once we got rid of him, (laughs) he says, but if coach goes, I go, you know, I'll only play if he stays. And the townspeople in your face, they're like, wait a minute. And there's nothing they can do about it because the only thing that is worse than how much they hate Norman Dale is how much they hate not having Jimmy Chitwood suit up in a Hickory uniform. And so they just have to eat crow and accept that the coach is going to stay because we need Jimmy out there. And as you said, Jason, from that point on, they're the baddest team in the land. And it is really cool to see.
0: Yeah, it's a great scene. It's a great moment. I loved when he said he was going to play, and only if Coach is there. Because up to that point in the movie, Jimmy has kind of been following the team, and he's in a way almost scouting Coach Dale to see if he's going to come back for basketball. If this is going to be the right coach for him, and he realizes this is going to be the exactly perfect what he's doing. Fit. So when he he comes back just in time to save the day, and it's
2: awesome. Don't you think that Myra, like, you know, he says, I think it's about time I start playing again. And she's like, are you kidding me? Like, really? You know, and, and she was not happy. But then when he says that, when he stands up for this coach, I think she's like, oh, wow. So wait a second. He's growing up here. I'm so worried and protective of this young man. But here he is stepping out against this whole town. He's revolting against this town, but not in the way I wanted him to. And he's stepping up and doing the right thing for a guy who was also doing the right thing. And I think she recognized. Oh, And I
0: remember seeing this at the theater and getting so angry when she walked up there and she starts unfolding that paper. And I'm like, God damn it. Here's the nail in the coffin. And then she (laughs) puts it back in her pocket and says, I think Coach Dale should stay. I was like, yes. That was the first one. And then Jimmy coming in and you're like, oh yeah, there you go. It's just pump fisting moments. Yeah.
1: yeah. Just a loaded scene, right? Different levels. There's not a false moment in it. All of it seems properly motivated, especially when after Barbara Hershey says to Hackman, Coach Dale, yeah, you probably shouldn't come tonight. It's going to be awful. And of course he shows up. I mean, the scene literally opens with him standing and speaking on his own behalf. And he, again, sticks to his guns and his values. And he just says, I take responsibility for everything that's happened and I do not apologize for it. It's like, oh, damn. Well, you didn't win anybody over by that speech there, but I appreciate standing up for yourself. And yeah, Jimmy Chitwood coming in like the hero that he is and delivering three of his four lines in the entire film. And... uh that is a tender moment. I'm glad you called that outset. That's interesting with because there's so much that goes on. Bill and I talked about this in our recent pod about the looks in a film. We were talking about Platoon, a look being worth a thousand words. And the look that Barbara Hershey gives Jimmy while he's standing up for coach is wonderful because it is a mini arc unto itself, right? You see her kind of frustrated, but then it turns to a look of pride in in Jimmy and being proud of him as if he did make his own choice and he made a good choice and he made a a well thought out choice. And that tender moment as he walks by and she reaches out and touches him on the arm, just says everything. And it's just, that's a smart actor, great direction. And uh, just a great performance by her because you see her getting a little teared up in the moment. It's just like, wow, this is such a, should be such an easy scene, right? We see town hall scenes all the time in these movies. It's the crowd, it's the mad mob going, are outrageous, we want them out. <laughs> but this, you come out of it going, yeah. And again, it cuts to right after this, it's like you're leaping off the couch going, hell yeah, because Jimmy Chit, what is hitting shots? And Jerry Goldsmith's score is just blaring in your ears. And you're like, we are off into the second half of the movie. That scene is literally the one hour mark. It's
0: montage right? time.
1: Yes. Who, ever, who doesn't love us? 80s sports That's montage, right. right?
0: Jason, back to you.
1: I got nothing else. I'm done. Have a good night. You're John. Done. All right. <laughs> My next scene, speaking of the great uh, Dennis Hopper, I'm calling this the first last shot. <laughs> Cause there's a, there's a few different last shots in this, in this movie. And I'm calling it really Shooter's Chance at Redemption. We know that Shooter, he's the town drunk. He's got a problem with the drink. But Coach Dale has decided to give him a second chance because early in the film, we understand that Shooter was a player himself and he makes a little nighttime visit to Coach Dale's. We know that, well, Shooter would make a great scout. He knows the game inside and out. He's already scouted the, the next team that they're about to play. And because of this, Coach Dale figures, well, maybe, just maybe, if I could get Shooter to clean up, he could be my assistant coach. And he approaches uh, Shooter with this idea. And Shooter then does show up all clean cut, looking like a different man. He's shaved. He's showered. He's wearing the same suit he got married in. But he looks sharp. It's impressive. So he shows up to be the assistant coach. And he cowers. He shrinks at the opportunity the first time around. But the scene I'm talking about is the second time around because we know it's tough, you know, when someone is dealing with the disease of alcoholism and Shooter has fallen off the wagon and Coach has gone to his place and he's already, he's dunking his head in the cold water, trying to get him to sober up and saying, I need you, I need you, you've got to be there. Shooter does uh, show up and is aware. And the thing is, in that scene when Coach Dale is trying to get Shooter to sober up, Shooter says to him, okay, but you can't get kicked out. Whatever you do, don't get kicked out (laughs) because it scares the hell out of Shooter when that happens. He's already nervous. Being sober is not easy for him. And when he is sober, he's very fearful. And then to be put in the spotlight like that as the assistant coach now on the bench We saw what happened the first time. He just sits down on the bench and can't speak a word. But this time around, uh, the game is being played. And gosh, a foul occurs. And this is just a great moment because it's a teaching moment. This is where we see Coach Dale at his best because he starts complaining about the foul that's occurred in the game. And we know that our Hickory Huskers are doing well at this point. So Dale knows what he's doing. He knows he can afford to take this moment and bring his assistant coach into the light, so to speak. So what happens after the foul occurs is that Dale is about to approach the ref and one of the assistant coaches knows right away what's about to happen. He starts to pull Dale aside and Dale goes, no, 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 I just I just, I just, just want to discuss this with him, all right? <laughs> and I love it because he goes goes right over to the ref and goes, you got pigeon shit in your eyes? <laughs> it's just like it goes from zero to 100 and, and then just leans into the ref and goes, kick me out of the game. Kick, kick me out of the game. And the ref's like, what, what? It's like, yeah, kick me out of the game or else I'm just going to blow up and make a scene. It's like, oh, okay, you know what you want. You're out of here. And then Hackman immediately is like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's just great. So good. And he gets kicked out. No, before he gets kicked out, excuse me, he goes back over to the bench and looks like, leans over and looks right at Shooter and says, well, I've done it again. It's up <laughs> to you now. <laughs> and Shooter's like, you got to be kidding me. No way. So Dale is out, but he knows He has to do this in order to build up Shooter's confidence. So it's great. So now all the players are huddled around Shooter. Mainly, of course, it's focusing on Everett, his son. And they're all looking at him. We know that uh, Shooter shrunk at the opportunity before, but here Everett helps him out a little bit and says, you think number 22 is going to take their last shot, dad? And Shooter says, yeah. He kind of comes to and says, yeah, probably they've been picking low all night. Raid, let yourself get taken out. Uh, Buddy, drop down and take his place. Close that lane. And so here now Shooter comes alive. And at another point now, the timeout is called in between these uh, scenes with Shooter and Shooter gathers them around and says, all right, boys, this is the last shot we got. We're going to run the picket fence at him. Merle, you're the swing man. Jimmy, you're the solo right. Everett, uh, Merle should be open on the other side of that fence. Now, boys, don't get caught watching that paint dry. And they all (laughs) smile. such a great line. So they run the play and boom, winning shot goes in. The Huskers, they win the game. Great music again. The score is uplifting. But to see that look on Hopper's face playing shooter, because he just needed a win. He just needed a win and he got it. And it was smart for Dale to put him in this position and put him on the spot. And that brief moment he shares with his son Everett after the game when his son says, you did good, Pop. You did real good. See, that almost brings tears to my eyes just saying it. Really, I get choked up and the look on shooter's face as he's kind of like goofily like jogging off the court with the coaches and the players after they just won this big game it's heartfelt it's redemption Everybody loves a redemption story. And there's a couple of them in this movie. And that's great choice. Great choice. And,
2: you know, another example of Norman Dale, right? Just, you know, inspiring, motivating, uplifting, whether it was a player, a coach, a school, a community is the power that this man has when he stepped onto that campus. Yeah, it's a great
0: scene, too. And I I remember, yeah, even seeing the theater and when he tells the official to kick him out, everyone started laughing. They thought it was funny, (laughs) but it got back into the seriousness of it. And I, I caught this time. I don't think I ever heard this before. After he gets thrown out, the other assistant coach is like, "I told him not to do that." And I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> he did too. But no, great, a great choice, and great to see uh, shooter step up. Because in the beginning, there he is. If he could be a turtle, yeah, he would be totally ducked into that shell. He's just trying to make himself as small as possible. But luckily, players kind of give him that nudge, and he goes from there. All right. So for me, I'm just going to go to a moment for my second favorite scene or moment, just because I just remember seeing this in the theater and I was like, I never thought of this. So the Huskers make it all the way to the championship game and they're going to Indianapolis to play at Butler Fieldhouse and they've never played in somewhere this big and they're they're a little intimidated about it. So they're coming off the bus and they're introducing them to the fieldhouse and the team walks in and they're just looking at this Massive arena, which is probably 10 times bigger than everything they've ever played. And all of a sudden, Coach Dale just pulls out a tape measure and goes, Buddy, run this to the, the free throw line. How far is it? And like 15 feet. And then he goes, Ollie, get on Straps' shoulder. Go over to the hoop. Measure it. And They measure it 10 feet. And then Coach Down just goes, I bet if we measured this back where we practice and play, it'd be the exact same measurements. Yeah, he's totally right. It doesn't matter what's on the outside. The court is always going to be the same. The hoop is always going to be the same. The foul line is always going to be the same. You just got to be able to block all that stuff out. For most sports, you know, dealing with football, field's always going to be the same. Goalposts are always going to be the same. Basketball, it's always going be, it doesn't it doesn't matter the outside distractions. What you know and what you've been practicing to do is exactly the same. The environment changes, but that court's going to be the same no matter where they play. They could be playing on the moon, been the same dimensions. Didn't matter. So I always just found that amazing because just being a basketball player myself at myself that time when I was at that point because I was getting older and I was traveling and you'd always be fascinated to go to somewhere new. That'd be the first thing I'd walk in and look at the gym like, wow, this gym has an electric scoreboard. Wow, look at all the seats this gym has. But it made me realize, Bill, the court's still the same. He's totally right. It's just all the same.
2: I have that written down. If if you guys were coming back to me, I had that scene. So great. I, I had it written. Me too. Yeah. Great call. It was a really neat moment. And, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that this film, while it wasn't Based on a true story, or isn't a true story? It was inspired by a true story. The 1954 uh, Indiana State High School champions—I I think Milan was the name of the the school—and they were. It was the first time a school that size, that small, had won the state championship. And that uh, I guess uh, in Indiana, it wasn't until the 90s they started doing what a lot of other states do, what we do here in Florida, where you know the size of the school. You're, there's different districts, and so you try to have schools that are of the same size and have the same pool of young people to choose from to build their teams to compete against each other so you don't have a school with 100 kids playing against a school with 5,000 kids. And in Indiana, that didn't change until the 90s. And so certainly at that time, clearly they showed you when you got the Butler Fieldhouse that the Huskers were going to be playing against a big city team, a bigger school, kids that were just more worldly, had been exposed to more things. And so these kids hadn't been outside of their small little universe, which in so many ways, right Barbara Hershey's character was trying to get them to see a bigger world and basketball did get them there but they needed to be reminded because they were in awe and the moment could have gotten too big for them but coach Dale made sure that it didn't exactly the way that he did for you Bill so uh yeah I thought that that was a really cool thing and that was something that was happening there is that these it's not just that they were getting to the state championship Is that it was, I think you mentioned it at the beginning, maybe on what was on the box, Jason, but it was David versus Goliath in a lot of ways. And that buildup of them to get outside of this little tiny five mile radius of an existence and to walk into the big time and to not be swallowed up by it because he broke out this tape measure. And they kind of laughed. They kind of chuckled, right? The players, when they were like, like, holy smokes, it really is the same size. Because that's the last thing you were thinking about is how tall is the rim? Because way past that rim, I just see stands that go on forever. So yeah, that was a very, very cool device that coach dale used to kind of calm the nerves of his players and you know can you imagine if you don't do that right you don't do that walkthrough and go visit the court imagine if they just came out in their warm-ups for the game and the first time they saw the field house it was was in that moment they would have got wiped off the floor but that allowed them to focus on playing basketball well said great
1: stuff uh, yeah, I didn't have much to add except for, it just made me think of the fact that, you know, people get playoff jitters. You get things happen when you get to the playoffs, when you get to the finals of any sport. Obviously, Seth, you can attest to this and I'm sure Bill knows, too. But I mean, you hear it every time you watch a broadcast when it comes to the playoffs or the finals, like when a team gets out there and they are discombobulated because they're just not used to the setting. They are out of their comfort zone. They are the pressure is different. It's just everything about it. There's a palpable energy that exists and it changes when you get into a bigger arena on a bigger stage. And it's no longer about your physical ability. Now it's about your mental fortitude as well. You have to adapt and you have to adapt quickly. And like you both had said or alluded to, is the fact that at least they got the time to practice for a couple hours on the court and also. You know, luckily have a coach that establishes, okay, let's, let's get out of your heads, get it out of your head, get out of your head, because this is the same game you've always been playing, you're going to play the same way we've practiced, and it's the same size court, etc. But it's hard. It's just hard. It's just different. It's just different. When you get onto a bigger stage, I always think of when I watch the, you know, March Madness, and they get into the onto that, this, the court is raised a bit, which is strange. It's just something as simple as that, where you're in a different, this looks different, this feels different. I, I'm not at home. I don't have home court advantage. I don't have my friends here. It's everything is alien, but that's mental. You're still playing the same game. It's hard, but this movie does a great job in that scene, especially showing the scope of that stadium. Yeah, and after watching all the games in their small, in their small gymnasium to go to a field house, it's like, okay, we're on a different level. Good stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. We're going into our Swiss cheese and complaint department. Okay, so moving on. Why do we call it our Swiss cheese? Because although this movie may be delicious, it certainly has hoop holes. What plot holes, bloopers, or general complaints would you like to file with our complaint department? Seth, why don't you start us off?
2: Yeah, and tough to to complain about one of my all-time favorite films and and, and a, just an absolute classic. But since we're here and that's the exercise and that's, that's the mission, I'll, I'll dig into a few things here. And there's a couple that jump out at me. And one, as much as we've talked about the great writing and the great performance of uh, both Gene Hackman and Barbara Hershey, there's this interesting relationship that Builds throughout the film between Hackman and Hershey. And I always found it awkward, especially as a younger person. It's funny now when I look back, because to me, Gene Hackman just seemed like this old coach. She talked about a coach in your 50s. Meanwhile, I'm about to turn 50s. So now I look at it and go, well, he's not that old. But in the, you know, when, when I watched that film uh, as a much younger person, He seemed like exactly what you got there, this old kind of washout that washed up on the shore of Hickory, so to speak. And uh, Barbara Hershey was young and beautiful. And at first, they had, you know, they were adversaries, but they. Just had this little weird dynamic that was starting to build and then it ends with this awkward, you know, he, he, they're walking there and and just out of nowhere, he gives her this kiss and you're like, well, wait a minute, how did that just happen? And she's got to be 25 years younger than him. And what that felt awkward to me. I don't think it needed to happen. I don't think there needed to be any romance between the two of them. I thought that they just could have built this respect for each other in that moment. Yeah, I I think that that was clumsy, uh, I think is the word that I would use in, in, in terms of the way that filmmakers built that relationship there. I do, you know, in doing the research, I guess initially the Normandale character was supposed to be a much younger man. Which was kind of funny early on when he first walks in. She says, "Are you the basketball coach?" And he says, "We expected someone different." She said, "Younger, maybe." Um, so you know, I, I thought that was interesting. But that I, I just felt that it was almost a little bit creepy as there was this unspoken and forced chemistry that they uh, they tried to impress upon us. And so, so that was one of the things that jumped out of me. And the other one, guys, can can someone tell me when Buddy was reinstated on the team? I mean, he gets thrown off the team in the first practice. Good point. The one coach says it's your funeral. And, uh, and the next thing you know, as you said, he's telling Buddy to go measure, get the tape measure or, or I, I think in the scene with Shooter, Shooter draws up the play and Buddy's included. I'm like, well, wait, wait where did Buddy come from? Like, I thought Buddy was out of here, you know, and and how dramatic that was that Buddy got kicked off the team and now he just kind of slipped back in and he's back on the roster. I feel like we should have seen how and why and where that came from. It's like the old PR guy in me, Bill, is wondering, where was that press
0: release? Because I must have missed it. I agree with both. When I was watching it, I was intentionally watching to see how this romance between Gene Hackman and Barbara takes place. This time I could see a little bit of the groundwork, but it's clumsy. It becomes too abrupt. It's almost like they skip three steps before that kiss, and it just doesn't work. But you could see they had started it, but they just jumped too far ahead, and it just didn't work for me. Um, I know the buddy scene, same thing. All of a sudden, you just see him on the bench, and you're like, where the hell did he come from? So they're supposedly a deleted scene, that it does explain all that. I've never seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was definitely one of those like, wait. When the hell did you come back?
2: (laughs) And, you know, how do you sneak that guy of all people? How do you sneak? If they had had a different player, if there was just some random player that you hadn't seen before and he was there, that almost would have been less offensive to me than the guy that we dramatically threw out of the gym on practice one right after George got tossed.
0: Yeah, it's, it's certainly something that needed to be cleared up. For me, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a, a page out of the Jason Massick playbook because <laughs> one one of the things about this is, yes, this is the story of Coach Dale and he's working with this team. And I always joke, like, if you ask me to name the players on this team, of course, I'm, I'm going to name Jimmy Chitwood first. And not that every movie I know all the players. But then my, the next person I'm going to come up with is Ollie, who's not <laughs> even a starter. Right. And then after that, it's Strap, who's also on the bench. So I don't feel like you get to learn a lot about the players. And there's a scene that I would love to have because you have all the adults and they're raining down on Coach Dale that they want him out of here. But I, I would have loved to see one. And then I'm just trying to figure out like some of the players you know who their dads are. But like with Rabe, the whole time I'm like, is the guy who plays the barber, is that Rabe's dad? Because just because they look alike. But I, I really would have loved to see one of the dads confront one of the players about Dale and the player go, no, Mm. this is my coach. This is what he's been doing for me. Just so we can see how the players actually respect coach Dale as a coach and they want him as the coach. And I think that's, kind of i I just wish they had that kind of moment somewhere throughout the movie i I wanted to see a little bit more emphasis on the players interesting i know most of the guys that brought in weren't really actors or trying to find more players but i I would just want to see that scene just one of the you know they're coming home from practice and and the dad just like you know this coach dale he just sucks i don't know why he's here we should run him out and then the player just go no he's my coach he needs to stay yeah that's my one little complaint
2: i guess they saved that for jimmy
0: yeah
1: Yeah, valid complaints all around to speak on what you were just talking about, Bill. I completely agree. It's interesting upon this revisit of this film how, again, I said in the beginning that this really is Coach Norman Dale's story because the focus obviously is on the basketball game and how it is coached and played and won, but we're really following Coach Dale's arc. And there is a mini arc with Shooter, and there are some other relationships throughout that are touched on, but it's really his story because, yeah, we just don't get to know the players that much now. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the basketball in this is phenomenal and we can't get enough of the basketball scenes and the way that the scenes are choreographed and shot, etc. cetera. And of course, the climactic uh, state championship game. What it made me think of when you were describing it, Bill, was the film that you and I saw and now has become one of my favorite sports films, which is Moneyball, which by many isn't even really regarded sometimes as a sports movie because of the fact that even though the baseball game is highlighted throughout, the story is about Billy Bean and it's his arc for the most part. Even though we're watching a fantastic season by the Oakland A's and we're following that arc in itself, and there's a triumphant game at the end of that story, but it really isn't focusing on the players. And, you know, we get to know their names, but we're not, you know, as invested in their personal lives or relationships with one another in the team, et cetera. It's more about the manager. And in this story, it's more about the coach. And that's just how this particular story is told. So it would be nice, of course, you want to, to get to know the players on the team, you want to really be invested in the team. Itself, so I totally understand, and Seth, I couldn't agree with you more. I just had written down the kiss, no thanks. <laughs> The romance, yeah, it's such a slow burn. It's a decent buildup. If they were going to even have an intimate moment between the two, I would have preferred it would have been at the end and something more subtle. I don't need to see them kiss. It could have been them walking off holding hands, and we're like, okay, we see where this is going. That's all I need to know. But yeah, it was uh, rushed in the moment. It was such a slow burn up to that point, and all of a sudden they're making out in the woods. Nah, pass. But the little nitpicky thing I had is when I thought this was going to be a little bit more of a romantic moment is when. Coach Dale comes over to Myra, Barbara Hershey's place for dinner beforehand. He's helping out on the farm. And Myra speaks of missing, you know, she had left her hometown there. And she speaks of missing the good things about living in a small town. One, nobody ever changes. It makes you feel really really solid. Two, one's private affairs stay their own. And I was like, uh... Usually that's quite the opposite in a small town. Your your uh, private affairs become everybody's business. That's really what happens in a small town. So that was just a really nitpicky thing I had. I just thought it was kind of funny. Although I have to say, again, in a small town, you can feel like you're noticed or seen at least, and you can feel really like you're a part of something. I mean, that's why they have those town halls and it's great. Like Everybody has a say and I, I do appreciate that. But when she says like people's private affairs stay their own i was like "Ah, i don't think so
0: but that's really all i got man (laughs) all right it's time to move on to hey it's that actor so in this segment we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo it's hey it's that actor seth do you have a choice for hey it's that actor
2: yeah, there weren't a lot of choices. As you said, they had a lot of uh, first-timers to make up the Hickory Huskers and some younger guys. But our guy, George, uh, you know Chelsea Ross, I was like, God, I know I've seen him in this, that. And, and of course, the film that I, I most associate him with was Major League, Eddie Harris, the Vaseline yep. ball pitcher, right? You know, Gaylord Perry-esque. That was uh, probably what most of us remember him from, other than being kicked off the court by Gene Hackman in, in this film. So, yeah, he would be my choice for, uh, for hey, That's yeah, Excellent that. choice. Yes, yeah, so
0: we covered uh, Major League back in season two. So, yeah, we definitely had some discussion mm. on Mr. Ross. All right, so this brings us to facts and trivia. What are some fun facts and trivia we learned about Hoosiers? Uh, Seth, you want to
2: start us off? Man, I love being first out of the gates, guys, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are treating me too kind. I definitely appreciate it. And this is the place to geek out, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that I love. It's all these little nuggets and, and, and what is the behind the scenes stuff. As I said, it's what we like to do in the fish tank is tell the stories that people don't all know. Uh, and certainly there was a lot of fun little things, especially with a classic like this in Hoosiers. And the one that really jumps out to me, we've talked a lot about Jimmy Chitwood and he was played by Maris Valenius. And, uh, you know, he's this reluctant superstar for the Hickory Huskers. And he was a reluctant actor for this film, right? So, you know, the basketball scenes, Bill, throughout the whole movie, you said you played ball. I played a lot of pickup ball. They felt incredibly authentic for me. It was a big, and a big reason for this is the fact that they the cast was focused on getting high school ball players they weren't as concerned for the players to get guys who were experienced actors they wanted to get high school ball players so that the basketball would be authentic that the kids would look the right age and that they could play the game i think it helped them in filming because they didn't have to do a lot of cutaway shots they could actually show the actors take the ball put it up there and put it through the hoop so i thought that was really cool But the only player on the Hickory Huskers who was not a high school basketball player was Maris Valanis, who played Jimmy Chitwood. He tried out for his high school team three times, and he was cut three times which is pretty funny that, you know, meanwhile, this ends up being the guy who's the best player in all of Indiana. But the story goes that the casting director happened to show up to the court on a night that they had open basketball and Maris was out there playing and he was just on fire that night. and He was making shot after shot like we saw him doing the film. And the casting director went up to him afterward and said, hey, why don't you know, we're filming this movie. Why don't you come out and audition? We'd love to see you tomorrow or whatever day it was going to be. So he says, what the hell? He shows up and there's four. I mean, this is Indiana now. So every young person every young man in all the entire state wanted to be in this film and Maris shows up there's 400 people there and he's like screw this he turns around starts to walk away as fate would have it the casting director happens to be stepping outside sees him walking away is like hey wait where are you going bumps him right to the front of the line by the time the audition's over he's not only in the film but he's Jimmy Chitwood I thought that was super cool
0: yeah, that was an uh, interesting story, you know, with the recruiting, because I think the player that plays Rabe moved on to play at, I think it was DePaul. And there was a big NCAA investigation about that because. Yeah.
2: DePaul. It was DePaul, not DePaul. Oh. So it a small school. Yeah, a small school in Indiana. Yep, but you're right.
0: And there was going to be a violation because he got paid to be in that movie. But right.
2: <laughs> what do you want him to do? You do it for free? Give him a break. know suspended him for three games i think and he had to give back five percent of what he earned on the film which it couldn't have been a whole lot it's just nuts but um
0: yeah so hoosiers was first released in theaters on november 16th 1986 in limited release it finally went into wide release on february 27th 1987 in 1039 theaters on an estimated budget of six million dollars it grossed 28.6 million domestically in the united states it debuted number five at the box office and stayed in the top 10 for another five weeks never placing higher than fifth. Uh,
1: for the scene where Dennis Hopper stumbles onto the court drunk during the sectional game, Hopper wanted a 10-second notice before the director called action. He spun around for 10 seconds allowing him to stagger onto the court and appear drunk. He remembered that James Dean in Giant from 1956 asking George Stevens for 30 seconds or so so he could spin around to better feel the inebriation. thought that was funny. That's getting into character there
2: for you. Yeah, Full method, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. So I, I had one other one, Bill, if it's OK, yeah, if go I for drop it. it in there. So, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Gene Hackman. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge fan uh, of this man. Uh, and from what I understand, the veteran actor was just wonderful with the young first time actors that made up his movie roster. You know, he was great with just as the coach with the players. He was really a coach to them, helped them with their nerves, gave them all kinds of advice. You know, Jason talked about as an actor, how intimidating it would be to share a scene, to share the screen with Gene Hackman. And from what I understand, he was giving them acting workshops. He was just great with them. However, as legend has it, that he wasn't quite as nurturing with his first time director and David Ansbaugh, I guess. For whatever reason, there was some clashing there and he made Ansbaugh's life, hell uh, even attempted to get him fired from the film at one point and uh, I guess there's a there's a scene there's a lot of great scenes as we talked about with Norman Dale and Shooter Fletch on the sidelines there. But there's one where we see the two of them on the bench talking, and and Dale whispers over to Shooter, and Shooter bursts out in laughter. And you come to find out this wasn't scripted, this wasn't two veteran actors flexing their muscle or creating magic for the screen, but a frustrated hackman actually leans over to um, Dennis Hopper and says, this movie's going to be the end of both of our careers. He had had it from this film, and then after the 39 days of shooting, like any film, they go back in, they start the editing process and they need to go through ADR. They need to get some of these lines re-recorded. They got everybody done except for Hackman. And then Asba was a little concerned that Hackman was like, you know, this was an absolute disaster. The last thing he's going to do is going to come back and record lines. So he decided, let me send him what we've got. Let me show him that we actually made a movie here and see if he likes it enough and maybe he'll come back. And they sent it to him and Hackman shows up for ADR. And they said he walked into the studio, turns to Asba and he says, how the bleep did you pull that off? Like he just he was just marveled at the fact that he had this miserable experience, thought it was a complete amateur hour and turns out it's one of the most memorable films of his career.
0: Yeah, that was crazy doing the research and, and realizing that Hackman was not for this movie at all. And even that the scene that you mentioned with Hopper and Hackman there and Hackman basically saying, yeah, our careers are done. I was like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. And the director didn't know. And he kept it in, and he found out way later that that's what was said to each other. So good. All right, so as for reviews on uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies, uh, there was a big split on their thoughts on the film. Roger thought it was wonderful, while Gene was let down by the movie. Hootroos was actually covered twice on the show, once in uh, 1986 and again in 1987, uh, when it went into wide release. And Roger was disappointed the second time that Gene didn't come around in the movie. Leonard Maltin gave the movie three out of four stars. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomato meter score of ninety-one percent and an IMDb rating of seven point four. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Hoosiers?
2: I think I put it all out there, man. I left it all out on the court, fellas. (laughs) I I just, I mean, I (laughs) I I don't know what those guys had concerns. I think sometimes people, and it's interesting, being an old PR guy working with media members who cover sports teams, I think sometimes critics feel like, oh, this movie, it's quote unquote predictable because there's this ending where they they win at the end or we stand up and cheer or there's maybe just kind of a beat that all of these sports films follow. And I say, who cares? As you said at the beginning of this, this episode, uh, Jason, this film makes you feel good. This film inspires you. I don't care that like if you thought, oh, yeah, well, they're going to win in the end. Yes, they won in the end, but we all won in the end because of the journey that they brought us on. So I think that sometimes critics feel like they have to live up to that name and be critical just because this film is wonderful. I, like what more could you want from an experience where you pay a few bucks and uh, or you're sitting down on a couch and you press play on uh, nowadays on on Netflix or whatever it might be and to just Be taken on a journey where you've got incredible acting, you've got great writing, you've got beautiful cinematography, you've got award winning score. Like what more do you want in a movie? So for me, it's five out of five stars, fellas. I think that, you know, it gave us everything we could handle. Hell yeah, man. Wow. That's
1: a great wrap up. I love it. Can we just end there, Bill? Did I I jump the gun? That really sums it up. (laughs) It doesn't matter. That was just great. I'm going to take it back a little bit because I have just more to say because I'd like to hear the sound of my own voice. (laughs) But you you were great, man. I appreciate it. I have a question for you guys. This is going to make me feel like an idiot, but I've always wondered, watching this film is because of this movie, actually. When watching the film, how the hell does the old school, like, analog game clock work? Not the digital clocks we see, but the one where you see the minute going by, you know. Goes, oh yeah, um, I know. the The hand on the clock goes around. How do you know how much time is left in the game? What is because it's that's a minute, right? That it takes to go around yeah. the clock.
2: Yeah, I was confused about how does that. I don't think any of us uh, generationally experience that. So it's a, great, it's a great
1: question. Does it go from, you see the 45 mark, 30, 15, zero. Right. right? So you think it's so going to be moving slow and it's, around? yeah,
0: it's going around like a minute hand.
1: So there must be, and I, I'm thinking, oh, is there another hand on the clock that is showing the actual time left that we can't see? Like it's a, it's black, like it's blended in and you just can't see it. I'm totally
2: unprepared That's to answer That's always this. confused me.
1: <laughs> when they go to other stadiums, of course, or gyms, you see the digital clocks and we know the clock. Is ticking down, but in their, I think it's on their home court. When you see that clock, and I'm like, I have no idea how much time's left in the game.
2: That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I don't know.
1: It's weird. Okay, that was a question. All
2: right. Sorry, no help. I wish
1: I had an answer. I do have, a, like, maybe this is a big question for you. So you don't have to pontificate too much on it, but it's something I always think about, especially watching this and then looking at today's game. And I know it's comparing apples and oranges at different time periods. We're talking about high school basketball versus professional basketball when I present this question, but in the beginning of the film during coach Dale's first practice, we hear him instilling his beliefs. The main one being that, okay, this is the quote, right? Five, Players on the floor, functioning as one single unit. Team, 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 no one more important than the other. And you even hear the quote again echo at the end of the film for added effect. My question is, have we lost a sense of team basketball (laughs) today? Absolutely. Is it maybe with the advent, uh, people have opinions on the advent of the three-pointer? Is it too much hero ball, iso ball? I don't know, quick opinions on... The team sport of basketball and where it was, where it is today, where it's going.
2: Bill, are you taking this? You jumping in? (laughs) It's it's a it's a heavy question. All
0: right. If you look at basketball, especially recently, and if you look at the teams that have won the championships, they definitely play team ball. I mean, you know, Spurs definitely come to mind. Um, Even the Warriors. I mean, the fact that you have the Splash Brothers and Green. Green's a great player, but he is so perfect for that team and that system. you got to have the pieces. There's no team where one player can carry the team. Everyone has to have some kind of part. I think we emphasize more on a star player and not enough on the pieces. Like I take, for example, the Heat when um, LeBron went there and they had Bosh and Wade. My favorite player on that team was Bosh just because he completely had to change his game in order for them to win. And he had to accept that. I was like, I, he has a reduced role. He has to play totally different than he used to play in Toronto. And if he doesn't do that, then that team doesn't win those two championships. So I, I think if you really break down the teams that have won compared to the teams that have not, it's still team basketball.
2: Good point at the risk of sounding older than norman dale here <laughs> i mean this kind of where we are as a society right it we, it's it, there's a promotion of individualism uh, you know players have their own social media they have their own podcasts you know so so much of it is Kind of the, hey, look at me, not just in that sport, uh, although in that sport, I do believe in basketball, it starts very early with the AAU teams, and all these things. And, and the sneaker companies, y'all, you asked about air earlier on and swooping in and everybody trying to get their shoe deal and have their commercial and, and all of these different things. But the biggest challenge I think that the sport faced uh, when you talk about team versus individual is the and one generation. Let's do all these tricks that aren't really even legal and let's create an image and a cool nickname and throw it up on YouTube and get my views up. And none of that is about trying to win a game. It's all about promoting individualism, which you can take it for what it's worth, good, bad or indifferent. But, uh, you know, you're talking about a speech that a coach gave in a high school gym in a small town in 1952 versus where we're at today in 2023 with Twitch and, uh, you know, players going live on Instagram in their own locker room. We're just in a different place. True.
1: Boy, well said. I appreciate that. Good answers all around for that question. I was just going to uh, give a shout out to a couple of other moments because I know we just are short on time here. But gosh, the moment when, you know, this is all right before the final shot in the, the state championship game. I mean, I don't want our listeners to reach through their radios and strangle us for not talking about the final shot mm. in the final game in the one of the greatest sports movies of all time. And it starts with Jimmy saying, I'll make it. I absolutely love that moment that moment when the team has grown up, if we've seen an arc, you know, we don't get a lot from our players as far as character development in this film, but as a team, we know where they came from and where they are now at the end of the film. And the fact that we have our coach who is like a god at this point, and he's making the call and he says, Jimmy's going to be the diversion. And the team just disagrees. They come together in that moment. They've all grown up and they back their guy. This guy, Jimmy Chitwood says, I'll make it. Great moment. And here's how strong that final shot is for me and how impactful it still is today because we all know it's coming. It's the big moment. It's the climax of the film. And man, it still gets me. This is how good it is, is that the movie actually stops before this happens. The Huskers take a timeout. I forgot about that for some reason. They take a timeout and they design this play and then they change it and he says, yeah, I'll make it. And then we continue with Jimmy's last shot and it's a brief scene that only lasts a matter of seconds. Yes, some of it is in, in like slow motion, but it's still sensational it, every time. And of course the music helps, but you just yeah, and afterward you want to stand up and run around the room and jump on your bed like Shooter. That's right. In, yes. in the hospital. It's just how effective the end of this movie still is today knowing everything. You said it, Seth, like it's so predictable. But you know, we've seen it a million times. It works. You can't deny it. it gets me every time.
0: So, yeah, Seth jumped the gun and already gave us his rating. So, you know, he gave a five out of five. How about you, Jason? What do you give
1: Hoosiers? (laughs) I concur. I am giving it five out of five stars and whatever else you want to put on top uh, of that. This is a banger. Gene Hackman is a force. Dennis Hopper is a force. The writing's wonderful. The Midwestern background is romantic. The story is romantic. Jerry Goldsmith's score is incredible and romantic. The pacing's just right. The finale is triumphant. The movie gets me, and every time I want to cry and jump for joy at the same time. It's one of the best sports movies of all time. The movie works for all time, every time. Five out of five for me.
0: Yeah, there we go. Five out of five for me also. Not my favorite sports movie of all time, but definitely my favorite basketball movie of all time. Second place is not even on the same page. So if you love basketball, you love Hoosiers. That's all there is to it. Seth, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to plug your excellent podcast and let the audience know how they can listen to you.
2: Well first of all, thank you guys for having me. I was very excited about this. It was great to reconnect with you bill and I think the two of you guys are doing fabulous work reviewing these films just looking at the catalog of movies that you have reviewed I mean it brings you uh, wax nostalgic it, it brings back so many wonderful memories so I love the journey that you take us on each and every time and uh, I appreciate you letting me uh, be ollie on, on this uh, on this roster here. <laughs> (laughs) Let me have my moment to shoot a a granny style free throw and win a game. So I I definitely appreciate that. But yeah, if you're listeners or certainly if you're if you're a Miami Dolphins fan and you're listening to this, you have to find us. We're at the fish tank 81 on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find the podcast anywhere that you stream podcasts, certainly on the big dogs, Apple and Spotify. Check us out there. We have a lot of fun with our social media as well. Uh, and just have it, try to have a good time with the show. I would say if you're not a Dolphins fan, don't let that dissuade you. If you like hearing good sports stories and you like hearing uh, people who did it at the highest level talk about things That everything from, I mean, there's players talking about their, you know, battles with mental health. There's players that talk about wild stories of things that happened on the field, off the field. So we do try to show, uh, well, I say show, I guess more tell uh, in audio format, uh, stories and things that you can't get everywhere else. It's not the same formulaic X's and O's conversation. We are storytellers. Thank you, Seth. And thank you, thank you too, yeah.
0: because when I, when I heard you were doing a show and I started listening to it and Jason and I had talked about doing this, I was like, All right, there's someone else I know that's doing it and they're doing it great. Gave me that push too to move it forward. So I appreciate it. And um, you know, I love listening to the show and even in the off season, there's always something going on in the football world. So the fish tank does not stop. Thank you. So please check it out. So yeah, so that wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again, Seth, for joining us today. Please check out and follow the Fish Tank Podcast. Also, please take time to follow and give us a review and rate us at the All 80s Movies Podcast. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. Or you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. Have a totally great week, everyone. Let's win this one for all the small
1: schools that never had a chance to get here. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night,
0: world.